this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. For today's episode, we are going to be talking about the 2021 U.S. Open. Um, on the men's side, uh, Daniel, Daniel Medvedev won his first Grand Slam, taking out Novak Djokovic, uh, who was, as we'll talk about, trying to achieve something that hadn't been done in two different ways. Um, number one, trying to achieve the calendar Grand Slam um, for the first time in over 50 years since Rod Laver achieved that feat. Um, and number two, trying to surpass uh, Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer, his two biggest rivals, um, and trying to surpass their shared. They each are at 20 Grand Slams right now, trying to surpass them for 21 to take the lead on the men's side in terms of the most Grand Slams. So that was on the men's side with Daniel Medvedev taking out Novak Djokovic. And on the women's side, Emma Raducanu um, took um, took out one sec, took out Lely, uh, Leila Fernandez, um, where two teenagers um, who really not came out of nowhere, but certainly were lower ranked. Both were unseated um, in the tournament. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of themes that have to do with the mental game that we'll talk about um, as it relates to um, each of the champions and also the finalists and um, what we'll talk about, what, what we as um, sports psychology professionals, as coaches, as tennis players can, can draw from some of these experiences because there's certainly a lot of teachable moments, a lot of uh, valuable insights that we can take away from, from this tournament. I think, uh, at least from what I could see, the 2021 U.S. Open was, was special in a lot of ways. I think there were a lot of exciting, very exciting matches. Um, and I don't think, especially on the women's side, anybody could have predicted these two particular finalists, uh, Leila Fernandez and Emma Raducanu. And I think that's a, a good place to start, Brian. I think um, talking about that with the women's final and how these two players, um, you know, maybe didn't come out of nowhere as much as it, it appeared. Um, you know, where, yes, they're, they're both younger players. Um, Raducanu was 18. Leila Fernandez actually turned 19 during the tournament. Um, and I, I, from w- one of my perspective or one of my takeaways, I would say is that, you know, that, that process as you're working on that process, as you're, you know, putting in those long hours day in, day out, um, you don't always see the results. The results may, might not always pay off immediately. You don't always see them. So um, by, you know, continuing to focus on that process, continuing to try to improve in different areas, um, sometimes you, you see that breakthrough, which is what I think we saw with, with both of them simultaneously, where um, Leila Fernandez, uh, it just seemed like she kept winning these really close matches against top players. Um, whether it was Naomi Osaka or um, Svetlana, um, and uh, where Emma Raducanu took a very different path, and um, she she from she was the first qualifier to to win to win the U.S. Open to win a Slam, I believe. Um, and not only did she qualify, you know, where instead of having to win three mat seven matches, she had to win an additional three matches. So she had to win 10 matches, but she didn't drop a set. She hardly played a competitive set the entire time. Um, so very different journeys to get to the finals. Um, but, but very impressive in their own light, especially considering, um, you know, their age and, and their, where they're at in their careers leading up to this point. And I, I think, um, yeah, I'm certainly excited to see what will come next for each of them. But Brian, what were some of the things that, that you took away from, from both of the finalists on the women's side? Well, with respect to Fernandez, you're right that while it may appear to maybe the average fan that this was out of nowhere, um, I just wanted to, uh, share a tweet that uh, 
Mark Lucero is a WTA coach, um, a Boston College guy, um, that he tweeted out before the final or right before that final weekend saying that the Fernandez run to him was not a surprise and that he, you know, Mark is the kind of guy who shows up early at tournaments and he noted that there's always one player and one coach there and it's Layla Fernandez and that, you know, she has done the hard work to be in this position. So for him, not a surprise that she was there. And it just shows the, you know, the amount of dedication that goes into this. And it's also, these are the things that the average tennis fan doesn't see. So yeah, it may appear to us that this is sort of out of nowhere, like where has she been? But um, this just might have been the moment for the breakthrough. Uh, I think with a lot of top pros, we do see breakthrough moments. I mean, somewhat. I mean, it's different. I'm not saying I'm not going to compare Layla Fernandez to this person, but Pete Sampras, 1990 U.S. Open, was a breakthrough. He had not showed that level of skill and dominance until that time, and you know, from then on, it was you know a, a solid, more than solid, <clears throat> after a couple of years, um, player in the top ten, top five. So. In that regard, I think Layla Fernandez is going to be around for a while. Um, and it's just impressive her path to the final. So Osaka in the third round, 6-4 in the third. Uh, Kerber in the round of 16, 6-2 in the third. Svitolina in the quarter, 7-6 in the third. Uh, in the semi, Sabalenka, 6-4 in the third. And it just shows this amazing ability to succeed in these clutch moments and for anybody who watched the end end of those matches what did we see from her we saw this um this excitement you know she's really pumping herself up playing to the crowd i thought she did a good job of that you know almost a la jim and connor's 80s and 90s you know getting the crowd into it and 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 so forth and the crowd loved it she obviously became a, a fan favorite during this um so i think she's a great person to have on the stage and um, and let's hope that she continues that. Um, as far as Raducanu goes, you're right, Josh. I mean, you know, ten matches, straight sets, and in the main draw, no one got to five games. I mean, that's amazing for you know someone who's a qualifier. I think the thing I like about her game, I mean, she appears to be pretty grounded out there. Not a lot of negativity. In fact, both players, not a lot of negativity at all. Um, and, and Fernandez, in, in some ways, remarkable because she is showing some of this positive emotion after points, but there's never any negativity there. Um, and, you know, Raducano, maybe at times there's a little bit, but not over the top. Um, the thing I like about her that I think she is also going to be around for a while, uh, her mechanics are really solid, her footwork is great. Um, the way she handled these moments, because even though we're saying, hey, she didn't have particularly you know close matches that doesn't mean there wasn't any adversity in there and she she pointed to that in her press conference at the final there certainly was adversity in those sets that she played but she you know stuck to the process of what she wanted to do played one point at a time i think these were some important philosophical points for her and she was able to come through in those matches and so you know, my hope is that both of them are around more. We can always have more depth, whether it's the men's game or the women's game. The more players who are in the mix, the more exciting it is for fans. But it's also better for the players because then they're pushing each other to be better. It's constantly raising the bar. Um, and so I think what Layla Fernandez did really raised the bar about how one handles these, you know, the business end of these third sets. Just su- super impressive how she did that in essentially four consecutive matches going into the final, coming through in the third. Four consecutive matches where she was a, a big underdog too. Yeah, she played a three seed, 16, a five, and a two. Right. right. <laughs> Not just four ordinary matches. As an unseeded player. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, I, I one, one quote or one moment that I took away from... Her, her run was actually after she beat Naomi Osaka in the on-court interview where they asked her 
you know, when did you start believing this was possible? When did you start um, believe that it was possible to, to beat Naomi? Was it in the third set? Was it after winning a set? And she said, no, they didn't ask that those parts, but you know, when, when did that self-belief start? And she said, you know, it started right in the beginning. It, going into the match, you know, right at the start, I she believed she could do it. And this is a, a concept we've talked about um, on this show, I, th- I believe actually in our last episode, but also in previous episodes where we've, um, in order for a player to win, um, especially if a player's, you know, ranked a lot lower or, um, you know, if a player's rating is lower or younger oftentimes, um in order, in order to win, and as, you know, especially if it's deemed as an upset, you have to believe that that is possible. You have to believe that you can win, not that you necessarily will win, but that you can win, that, it, that you're capable of winning, and then that makes that performance at least possible. So I think that that quote by her that she believed she could do it from the start, um, you know, that that certainly played a big impact with with. Not not only the Naomi Osaka match, but her performance as a whole. Well, think about what a great answer that is. Right. In terms of just anybody who's a young player or anybody just listening to that, it's the self-belief has to start before the match begins. Like you said, Josh, we've talked about this concept many times. And I bring this up when I'm working with with teams, especially. And we'll, we'll talk about, say, the NCAA basketball tournament and March Madness and the idea of, say, a 15 seed beating the two seed. The 15 seed team can't beat the two seed if they have no belief. They will lose. Um, now, the fact that more of those upsets have happened actually can help teams who are seated 15th. Uh, you can believe it. It's not, it's not uh, <laughs> totally unusual that that might happen. Um, and so, in, in essence, matches like these are not even near the level of upset I don't think than like in the in the in college basketball like a 15 seed beating a 2 seed that's a huge, much bigger upset than say Layla Fernandez beating Naomi Osaka if we look at UTR I mean they're really probably not that far away um, but what's the difference when you look at the pro level and you can see it on the men's side up until maybe more recently um, because all these guys are super close UTR-wise. It's that belief gap. If you believe you can do it, then you have a much better chance. But if you really don't, and you know, up until I would say this past weekend, we haven't seen uh, other players outside of the big three that are younger, right? Because we've had Vavrinka, Chilich, Del Potro. They've won some Grand Slams and and, and uh, against and they've won big matches against the, the big three but you know from that you know current generation of Pass team Medvedev Zverev they haven't had that Grand Slam success yet against the top guys I mean team has beaten Djokovic I think at the French maybe once or twice in the semis um, but you know not in a, he hasn't been able to do it in a final and I do think there's a belief gap there and Leila Fernandez crossed that belief gap and i think now emma raticano has crossed that belief gap you know and you know her path was different she didn't have to sort of run the gauntlet of all of these seeds that that fernandez did but um you can't get into a u.s open final regardless of who you're playing and win it if you don't believe you can do it exactly exactly it's a necessary ingredient for that high performance for achieving something special as as she did not only once in that match, but constantly throughout the tournament. Right. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think with her, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously that, that hard work that led her up to that point. It's that self-belief. Um, it's that fighting spirit after, after each point there that you saw, you know, those positive celebrations after points one and that, um, that rare lack of a letdown when, you know, points were lost. Um, I think we, you know, we, we've seen that generally when, when players have these, you know, emotional, positive emotional outbursts, they're more often than not, it also happens on the negative side um, where, where you, you know, you can, it's easy to get negative where if a player is more even keel, 
they tend to stay, you know, more neutral regardless of what's going on. Um, but she is a, a special case, as you pointed out, Brian, of somebody who didn't didn't have that negativity despite really using the crowd to her advantage and really being positive and pumping herself up constantly. Um, I actually have some quotes here from from Ed, Emma Raducanu, um that were actually tweeted out. I should give give credit by uh, Dr. Josephine Perry. Um, just just recently, um, just a few days ago. And uh, here are some of these quotes. And I think um, from at least a few of these, there's six quotes here. Um, we can, uh, th- th- there's certainly some themes here. Um, the first one is I'm, I'm just taking care of what I can control. I think pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, as well as I'm on my own journey. Um, that's a good one, Josh. Maybe just stop there too. Is yeah. Because that's, um, We've, I think we've discussed the idea of trying to separate results from the person, right? The experience from the person. And when looking at tennis as a journey or um, as a, say, a life project, it's, um, I think it's easier to process what's happening. It's not so much a part of your identity that you know when wins and losses happen it's it's something that you do and uh it's kind of a sort of an existential psychology or existential philosophy type of view here um but i think it's useful that if the more of us that could look at our tennis games as a journey that we're on or a project that we're working on uh the more rational and objective we can be on that on that journey, uh, and I think you can also handle the successes and the failures even better. And I think um, that's what we're seeing from her. Uh, you know, reading the quotes after the tournament and how she's just enjoying her life and how it's going. Uh, I don't think she's getting too caught up in it. So I think she's got a really good perspective there. Yeah, yeah, and I think also that philosophy that you're talking about prevents or maybe not prevents but lowers the chance of comparing yourself to other mm-hmm. other players mm-hmm. and maybe that leading to disappointment i mean yeah. there's that, that quote that i think um and actually is similar to another another quote from from this list but that you know comparison is the the, the thief of joy. joy yeah um so that you know if somebody else is making their breakthrough or somebody else is winning matches um, or, you know, in a non-tennis setting, somebody else is having success in some way, you're making more money or whatever it is. It, it makes you feel worse about yourself somehow. Um, So by reminding yourself that this is your own journey, your own path, there will be those ups and downs and those, you know, those, those great moments and maybe those, those down moments. Um, I just think it's a, a really important reminder, and yeah. I think it, it's an important perspective to have for sure. Um, so I, I guess I guess I'll, I'll go I'll go to the fourth quote because it's it definitely relates to what we're saying, which is to compare yourself. This is again from Emma Raducanu. To compare yourself and your results against anyone is probably like the thief of happiness. So it's exactly what what we're talking about. That you know this is her journey um, rather than needing to compare herself against anybody. Um, moving on, another quote this, um, is, I'm staying in the moment, focusing on the process. Again, something we've sort of two different concepts we've talked about in terms of staying present, right? Staying in this that present moment rather than getting caught up in uh, what has happened and what might happen in the future. Um, and then also that focusing on the process aspect, which we've certainly dived into. Um, the next thing is I trust myself. I, I, I guess these, um, yeah, I trust myself. It's all mental at the end of the day um, is, is definitely an important concept. Actually relates to me to what we were talking about, about with um, Leila Fernandez and her self-belief, but this, you know, self-trust um, going into matches and that she has um, ab- about herself, I think is, you know, is a, a huge factor in, in 
and making a breakthrough run like this. And then the last one, which is actually my personal favorite from this list, um, and maybe we can, you know, send a, in, in the show notes, if, if people want to reread any of these quotes, we can make sure we have a link to, uh, to this tweet. Um, but this last quote is, this could be the last time I play here, so I might as well just go for it and enjoy everything. Yeah, I think I think that that understanding and that sort of appreciation of the moment, um, not just taking it for granted that you're, you know, winning a Grand Slam or getting to the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals of a Grand Slam, but understanding that this is something really special and that you never know if and when this will happen again. So you might as well, you know, the, the quote says, might as well just go for it and enjoy everything. I think those two pieces, number one, that, hey, let's let's go for it. We don't want to have any regrets, that, that first piece, but also let's, let's enjoy it. Let's not view it as a threat, but more as of an opportunity that, you know, that we have here that we're appreciative of and really try to enjoy that moment. I think that's another good existential philosophical perspective that, hey, this could be the last time I'm here. You know, whether something can happen, whether that's injury, something worse, maybe that sounds a bit morbid, but that's true. We're all at some point going to die. So, you know, we need to grab things when we have those opportunities. Um, And, you know, the fact that she has this particular perspective at 18 years old is fantastic. It's only going to make her much stronger. You know, and I think you bring that back to the present moment piece. You know, there's an example in that final game where she had to take the medical time out because she was bleeding from her knee. Um, and she appeared, you know, completely calm at that moment while she was being treated. Um, she didn't want to stop, but she took it as it came. And uh, I thought she handled the moment well, and 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 was able to to navigate that game and and, and finish it off. Um, so you know I think a lot of great stuff from her. Um, you know whoever's on her team, etc. They're really doing a great job in terms of shaping her her perspectives on these things, and um, I think it bodes well for her success going forward, which is great. Um, I think one thing I'd like to come back to is with Layla Fernandez, um, something that she discovered in the tournament, and this was in her um, press conference. And I bring this up because I was actually talking to somebody today who watched the match and was commenting on how Fernandez was playing to the crowd and getting excited afterwards. And we, we've mentioned this already today, but um, that apparently was not really her, you know, prior to this tournament, not her norm. Her norm would be to be rather calm. And so she was asked in her press conference after the final, uh, what specifically do you think you learned about yourself in your game that you can carry forward? You know, it's a great question. And Fernandez responded, there's one thing that really surprised me was that the more that I'm more outgoing on the court and that I try to get the crowd involved, the more I'm playing well. Usually when I was younger, I tried to be as calm as possible, just like Federer. I'm glad that I have discovered that of myself, that I play a lot better when I'm more, not motivated, but when I'm more outgoing, and when I'm using the crowd to my advantage. And, and I thought outgoing was actually a good way of putting it. Um, not, not all of us are necessarily extroverted, but extroversion or you know some level of that can be helpful toward performance and toward confidence and, and, and self-belief. So what I liked about this, Josh, was that Layla Fernandez is talking about, you know, what she's doing between points. What is her optimal intensity level or her optimal emotional mix? Um, this goes back to a psychological theory called um, individualized zones of optimal functioning. We are all different in that regard. And so the thing that she's doing here is she's discovering more about what triggers her optimal functioning. And this is something I would encourage everybody to experiment with a little bit is they try to be more outgoing. Maybe that helps. Maybe for those of us who are a little already at that end of the spectrum, 
see if being a little calmer helps. And and play around with that. Play play at the extremes, play in the middle, um, and just see what works. You may discover something, and that's really cool that she's discovered this. Let's see how that plays out over the next several months. Because I think it's easy to probably play to a crowd like New York. And there may be crowds around the world that are harder, maybe don't give off as much energy as as the New York crowd, or there may be smaller venues, or uh, you know maybe the first Monday or Tuesday of a tournament indoors somewhere doesn't have as many fans, so maybe harder to do those types of things. So it'd be very interesting to see how she how she is able to carry this forward. Yeah, yeah, I think you break bring up a great point there that there's a process that players ought to go on of trying to figure out what works best for them in terms of, you know, of their optimal functioning of, you know, how pumped up they want to be. Um, I mean, and, and you see different players being successful with this at different, at, at different levels, right? Yeah. Um, like a Federer, you know, who for the most part is, is pretty even keel um, or like a Borg, you know, some, something like that um, where you relate that to maybe a McEnroe or a, Nadal, um, or, you know, what we saw from Fernandez during this tournament where, um, you know, it was a, a lot more on the other side of the spectrum. Um, and actually this, this re- reminds me a little bit in a, you know, in a different way of our conversation with Jeff Greenwald, where we talked about playing loose and how you want to be able to tinker around with some of these different feelings like, okay, uh, this is what, you know, maybe in practice you say, okay, this is what playing really tight feels like. Can you try to play a, uh, you know, a few points feeling really tight as tight as possible, clenching your muscles. Um, and then you want to play some points feeling as loose as possible, maybe too loose in some ways. And then you want to figure out what's your optimal, um, optimal zone for how loose or how tight you want to be. Um, and it's the same, it's the same as, um, in terms of how pumped up you want to be. Um, so it's, you know, and it, it's going to be different for each player. So I think there's the, that process of figuring out what works best for you, doing some tinkering during practice, doing some tinkering maybe during matches as well, where some matches, as you talked about with Leila Fernandez, uh, maybe in a new environment, maybe you're playing, you know, maybe it's the conference tournament or maybe it's a big rivalry match or whatever it is. And maybe there's this is opportunity where hey i want to experiment with being you know a little bit more amped up um a little bit more excited um and see how that works that it might not it might not work out to your advantage you might have a tough time focusing and staying um staying on track with what you're trying to do out there in terms of your strategy in terms of your breathing perhaps um in terms of some of these other aspects um but it's it's certainly worth tinkering with and experimenting with to to figure out what what works best for you in terms of what zone you function best at. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think a lot of great lessons from the the women's match. Um, perhaps we can begin to transition now to the to the men's final, Medvedev versus uh, Djokovic. Yeah, I think some. Some similar themes, I think. You know, certainly the self belief theme. If we look at Daniel Medvedev, um, first of all, uh, talking about how winning the ATP Finals last year was an important step for him. Um, he had this is his third Grand Slam final, so he's clearly learned some things from the the first two. You know, not not succeeding in those, um, and knowing that he's playing, you know, a guy who's got a lot of history on the line, but a guy who. He's got a ton of respect for, um, and he mentioned that it seemed every time he played Djokovic, Djokovic would be changing the tactics and can be very difficult to play in that way. Um, but I think even though like uh, there was a f- sort of a funny end to the Medvedev press conference where he was explaining his celebration, what he did, um, the fact that it was planned out, Josh is an indicator to me that he knew he could win. Um, 
Because, I mean, how many of us would actually do that if you didn't think you could? Um, you know, and for those who haven't seen it or read it, it's, it's worth watching, uh, you know, him talk about it because it's kind of funny. And I think uh, we were talking before, you know, his personality is growing on me. I, you know, I, I, I like uh, that he's out there. He is trying to have some fun and make things interesting and so forth. And he's got a super interesting game. I mean, I don't think anybody could ever copy it. Uh, right? You're not going to teach those strokes or the way he moves and, and so forth. But um, it's really impressive what he did. I think his strategy was very interesting in terms of hitting a lot of softballs up the middle and then cracking some big shots at times, really changing up the rhythm on Novak. And so that that was the thing that really showed me after the match that like, he really believed he could win. He actually planned his celebration. But I think it was a lot of things that led up to that. Like you said, you know, the ATP final, the previous Grand Slam finals, he's beaten Novak before. So, um, you know, he knew he could do it. And I, he probably also knew that Novak had had a lot more hours on the court. And it appeared to me that Novak hasn't really been playing well since Wimbledon. I don't think he had a great Olympics. I think his level of play in this tournament was not as high. And, um, you know, he noted at the end of his press conference that in a way he's kind of glad the, the whole thing is over. I think, I think that, yeah, him, him making that admission that he's glad that the whole thing is over is maybe an admission that he was feeling a lot of pressure, even yeah. if, even if he didn't say it explicitly, I think, um, I mean, with all that history on the line between trying to break Nadal and Federer's record and the, the, um, the calendar grand slam, uh, it's, it's a lot. And he, during the tournament, when, when he was asked about it, he pretty much pushed it off and said, Oh, we can talk about it at the end. Um, but no, I, I think I, I would agree that ever since Wimbledon, he hasn't had his best tennis. He had a disappointing, um, disappointing Olympics by his standards um, where he lost his final two matches, um, the semifinal match, as well as the bronze medal match. Um, and then, yeah, that at this tournament at the U S open uh, it didn't, he wasn't necessarily as dominant as we're used to seeing. Yeah. He dropped a lot of first sets against different players that we wouldn't have expected. Um, and, yeah, he, especially in that final, uh, he just seemed, he seemed a little tight. His leg, I know he talked about his legs feeling a little bit heavy. Um, and to, to Medvedev's credit, he really stepped up. He really brought out his A game for almost that entire match. It was, it was actually just a small blip at the end of the, or at 5-2 in the third set when Medvedev was up and serving for it for the first time when we saw any sort of nerves or any sort of a drop from Medvedev where he, I think he had a, a couple of double faults, um, one on match point, I believe. And, uh, yeah, one on match point and I think one on the next point at deuce. And we saw maybe a drop from him or at least a, you know, blip on, um, where he has, you know, maybe felt a little bit tight, but then the next time around when he had that second chance to serve it out, he, he seemed to make adjustments perhaps in a similar way. And we were, Brian and I were talking about this off off air beforehand um, in a similar way, a little bit to maybe some of the adjustments he made after, you know, facing Djokovic in the past. I mean, this is his, this is his third final, his third grand slam final, um, including, you know, one very recently to, to Djokovic. Um, so yeah, he, he made, made the needed adjustments and I would say capitalized on Djokovic being, um, you know, a little bit off, a little bit away from his best. I think also when you're serving at five, two, and you lose that game, it can help you. And this may sound counterintuitive for some players. I think it helps them in the five, four game. They've been through it. They know they've been a little bit nervous and, uh, they can learn from that. You could certainly turn it around and say maybe you'll be even more nervous, but I don't think Daniel Medvedev is that type of player. Um, I, I think he actually learned from that 5-2 game, and he knows that it's it's 
it would be a monumental task for Djokovic to break him twice. And he settled down. He handled that second time around much better. Uh, and I think that was an impressive mental comeback uh, in terms of him serving out the match. I think the other thing I'd like to say about Djokovic, and uh, you know, I don't want us to be you know perceived here as hammering Djokovic. I think we got a comment once where like, we're always hammering the eye. And to be honest, I think we're actually pretty nice to Djokovic. I think we've, we've sung his praises many times. Um, and he is arguably, as much as many players, fans don't want to hear this, he probably is going to go down as the greatest of all time in terms of his, I mean, the stats just say it, right? But in this moment, I thought, um, and this I think happened against Verov as well, I thought it was very interesting that he stopped trusting his baseline game. The game that has gotten him to be that dominant player, he all of a sudden abandoned it. He didn't trust it. He started serving and volleying and playing and against Verev, playing short points, just very non-Novak Djokovic. And, you know, it would be interesting to delve into that a little bit with him, like what was really going on there. Because Novak, if you know, if I'm, let's say I was a, a player of that level, if Novak Djokovic is serving and volleying against me, I think I'm happy. I think that actually gives me a better chance of beating him than him playing from the baseline. Um, and it's just an interesting adjustment that he made that he went away from a massive strength of his, something that has broken many players down, broken many players mentally. And for some reason, he decided to, to go away from that. Um, and I'd love to know more about that, but I thought that was a that was an indicator, for sure, that something was was happening with him in this tournament. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think you know, the fact that we saw it after you know after he fell behind, probably you know has to do something with his confidence dropping in, in his bread and butter. I mean, we've we've seen you know over the years and really over the last what fifteen or so years. We've just seen Novak Djokovic break down so many players from the baseline. He, I mean, he's he's probably more solid than anybody. He, he's able to limit his own unforced errors, and he's able to to dictate uh, on both sides in a in a very remarkable way. And from the net, he's certainly capable of finishing from the net, but I don't think he is exceptional in the same way at the net as he is at. Um, from the baseline, I wouldn't put him as, you know, the best volleyer in the world or the, you know, having the best overhead in the world by any means, um, where, you know, with his ground strokes, he's certainly as good as anybody or better than anybody, you could say. So, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying, that the fact that he switched his tactics from the bread and butter, from the very solid baseline game where maybe he finishes points at the net, um, and looks for the opportunity to come in at those at those key moments to a tactic of servant volleying, which didn't seem to be a tactic that he went to for because he thought that was the best tactic, but maybe he went there because what he was doing wasn't working. I, I think that's telling, and I think it, yeah, it, it, you know, if if you're seeing a player that you know, a player that you play all the time, let's. At, at your tennis club or at the you know wherever you play um and then all of a sudden they are changing tactics that's that's probably a sign that they're uncomfortable in some way or they've yeah. lost confidence in some way so I, I i think that's a great point it's just something yeah, i don't really recall seeing from him in in, in big moments of doing this uh certainly you know doing something like that every now and then is was one thing but actually completely going away from your strength. You know, we've talked on this podcast in the, in the past about when do you change your game and, 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 or do you continue to try to improve your A game? And is, is that in itself a change? And so, um, yeah, I just wonder what, we don't know the answer. We'd have to ask him exactly what he was thinking in those moments. Did he feel like that Zverev and Medvedev weren't going to break themselves that he just didn't have what it took to to, to get to those guys so again a, a belief thing a confidence thing leading to uh, 
subpar performance on his part. His part. Um, of course, there were a lot of uh, you know dynamics going on with Novak in this tournament. So um, there's that, of course, right? There's so much history going on, and uh, it's not a surprise that that uh, this this happened in a way. Um, my expectation, Josh, is that Novak will take some time this fall, and he'll be back for the Australian Open. You know, he noted he's still motivated, and I wouldn't be very surprised if he got number 21 in Melbourne in, in, in January, assuming the tournament is played. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I wouldn't either. I don't, I don't think, yeah. I think, I mean, that's, that's the tournament that he has really dominated. Um, and, yeah, I, I would agree. I think, uh, yeah, perhaps a little time away from the sport or, you know, taking a couple of tournaments off could, could do a lot of, a lot of benefit for him. Um, yeah. I think another thing that I noticed is, you know, maybe with him feeling a little bit edgier is some of the negativity that we saw from him during that final in terms of, you know, smashing the racket in terms of it looking like he was about to, you know, slam a ball into the, into the stands, um, which obviously, you know, him smacking balls has gotten him in trouble at the U S open in the past. Um, so I think, you know, not only was the change in tactics a giveaway that of that uncomfortability of that you know drop in confidence, but also the the negativity, the negative emotions that we were seeing, um, that we you know perhaps we do see that from him at times more than some of the other players, but we also see the positive from him where he gets really pumped up. He you know has his celebrations. He'll rip. He's ripped his shirt off. I mean, he gets very pumped up um but you know that when that negative side comes out not only is it a almost a clue to their opponent that you know either they've gotten to them or you've gotten under their skin but it, it also gives you know you either either um you've gotten under his skin or he's off of his game number one but number two it gives confidence to your opponent that's something i i try to talk about with with athletes um, and, and teams as well that through your body language through the way that you are acting on court you're you're helping you're helping your opponent by by that you're pumping them up you're giving them confidence you're saying to your opponent hey i'm get, you, you know you're getting to me you're whatever you're doing is working um, because I'm off, I'm, I'm frustrated, I'm pissed off and I'm off my game and I'm, I'm upset. You know, some, some players might look for an excuse at that moment, but when that frustration boils over, it's, it's almost like a shot of confidence or it can be a shot of confidence to your opponent. So I think trying to have players understand that, you know, at the club level, at college level, high school level, whatever it may be helping players to understand that, Hey, this, this doesn't just impact me and bring my performance down most of the time. It also is just a boost of confidence for my opponent. Yeah, I I agree. And, um, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword because it's, you're also harming your own ability, harming, you know, like if, if you think of, uh, sort of the, the stoic concept of one's inner fortress, inner fortress of mental toughness, you know, when you act that way, you're actually weakening your own, you know, mental fortitude, you're weakening your own fortress. Uh, and at the same time, like you said, you're sending all this information over and you're strengthening your opponent's mental fortitude. You're helping strengthen their inner fortress of mental toughness. And you got to know that that kind of thing, that dynamic exists and is going on. Um, and, and so that's, that's, it's super important there. Um, I'm curious, Josh, what do you think about Daniel Medvedev now? I mean, he's, he's now won his first grand slam. He seems supremely confident. He also made the final of the Australian open last year. So clearly that's a surface he's good on. You know, he, he's noted out how much he likes hard courts, um, yeah, what do you, you know, if you were to prognosticate for, you know, 2022, what do you see for him? Big, big things. Definitely big things. I mean, um, I think this, we talked about on the women's side, that being a breakthrough, 
Um, yeah, he's had his breakthrough moments in the past. I mean, I think of 2019, where he went on a, such a long winning streak over the summer, over those summer months, um, winning you know a number of hardcore tournaments in the U.S. Open series, leading up to the U.S. Open, and then going all the way to the final, where he brought Nadal to five sets and, and ultimately lost. Um, so he's had other breakthroughs in terms of that, in terms of making it to his second final, you know, at the Australian open in terms of winning the um, year end championships. Um, but when you win a grand slam, especially I will say over a member of the big three, which hasn't really been done before by a younger generation member. Right. Um, so this is the first time that that has happened. So when you win a Grand Slam, it's it's a different level. It's a different type of a breakthrough. Um, so I think that's part of it, him being also number two in the world, um, just behind Novak, who he just beat in, in this final in straight sets. So I think he's going to draw a lot of confidence from this, I would expect. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think he's also probably won a lot of fans from this whole experience from, as you said, his personality coming out, you know, more. And I think he'll have more fan support than he's probably ever had um, in the future now. And, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to see what he can do. I mean, he's, um, you know, his game may look a little bit awkward at times. I saw a great clip of some of the different forehands that he hit, <laughs> some, of, some of which, you know, not looking like a player who, just won a grand slam or, you know, is number two in the world, but um, looking a bit awkward at times, but as you said, the way he covers the court, the way he serves is, you know, I'd, I'd put up there with, with almost anybody, um, his consistency from the baseline, um, which I would actually compare to Djokovic's um, and just, you know, his flexibility as well in terms of playing defense and getting to balls and getting one more ball back and, extending the length of the rally um yeah i think i think both in terms of his offensive abilities his defensive abilities his serving his mental game as well how he's really seemed to have improved on that i mean i i remember in 2019 how he had his um sports psychology professional with him in his box and that being a big deal obviously we've seen since then other players um, like Iga Sviantek, um, who have you know really also embraced um, their own sports psychology professional, you know, having them in their box or talking about the importance of them. Um, I actually heard something interesting um, of uh, about about Daniil Medvedev, um, which I believe was a few years ago, two or three years ago. Um, I think probably 2018. I could be wrong on that. Um, where he went on a I think it was from maybe Washington DC up to either um, Toronto or Montreal for the, the Rogers, the Rogers cup. Um, and they decided rather than flying, they were going to drive him and his coach. And, you know, he's a top hundred player at the time. It wasn't out of necessity or, or finances, but they, they did it for a reason. They said, or they, they decided to have a long talk, almost a, a, uh, come to Jesus moment. You could say, I think that's, that's how it was compared. And um, essentially they, they had a talk that, Hey, you know, he has a lot of ability. I think he was ranked, you know, outside of the top 20 at the time, but he wasn't necessarily taking everything as seriously as he could have with his nutrition, with his rest and recovery, um, with his mental game. And from what I heard that, that from what I heard in, um, but from the commentators covering him, that was sort of that turning point that really made him increase his commitment level and ultimately seemed to lead him on this path to where he's at right now, where he's, you know, now this is his third final, uh, third major final, his first title, and, you know, really making that breakthrough. I mean, perhaps not as sudden of a breakthrough as a Fernandez or as a Raducanu, but a breakthrough nonetheless in terms of winning your first grand slam. And, you know, it's something we haven't seen from very many people in the, the last, you know, 15 or so years. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's really, we can actually count them on, on, um, on 
what one hand in terms of other than people who have won three on the men's side in terms of Murray and Wawrinka, it's team. Most recently, it's Chilich. It's Del Potro. Yeah. And that's it. And um, team is closer to him in age, but certainly Chilich and Del Potro are of a different generation. So, um, yeah, it's very groundbreaking, and I expect a continuation of, of big things. And, yeah, I, I would expect him to to, – to, to, I would say win a – win a major at least one next year and also i mean i'll i'll make one one more point i know i've been saying a lot here but um he had never won a match at roland garros going up to this year and i believe he made it to the quarterfinals something like that right around there you could look that up um and i remember he was even joking about it i think he'd made a tweet that his goal for the season maybe, or his goal was to win a match at Roland Garros. Um, I believe he hadn't even won that many clay court matches going leading up to this year's tournament. Um, did you, did you check that? Yeah. So he did get to the quarters. He lost to CC pass in straight uh-huh. sets, but yep. a good win over, uh, Cristiano Garin of Chile. Yep. Yep. And yeah, I mean, I think, I, I also think that run there, says something about him. I mean, we've we've talked about how playing on different surfaces can improve your game as a whole. Yeah. Um, playing singles or doubles can improve the other um, your game and and uh, the the reverse as well. And you know, perhaps it was some of the confidence that he gained through doing better on clay and going, you know, making it to the quarterfinals compared to losing in the first round again that also led to some of that confidence. And, you know, with someone like him, I could see him being successful on all surfaces next year and going forward. So um, what, what do you think, Brian? No, I, I would agree with you, Josh. I think uh, he's got the confidence and the self-belief. He's got a little bit of the swagger that he knows he can beat these guys. I think that's an important part of it. And his game is, um, like you said, He's he's very similar to a Djokovic from the back of the court. He can retrieve everything. He's extremely consistent. I think where he's better than Djokovic is with the serve. His first serve is better. Not that Novak isn't a good server. Novak has certainly improved his serve. He hits his spots. He holds his serve a lot. He backs it up really well. Um, but you're more likely to get aces out of, from Medvedev, and that can be somewhat demoralizing in itself in terms of making you know your opponent uncomfortable um and you know i don't know that we talk about his return game much uh maybe because he stands so far back so he has more of a i would say a nadal style of returning as opposed to the way djokovic is more up on the baseline is a little bit more able to take it offensively sort of similar to to murray as well um so he's he's neutralizing more so than being offensive off of the return um, but I would expect him, yeah, to only get better and better. And he seems to be, in terms of handling success, having fun and enjoying himself for the most part. And so, uh, um, yeah, I think he'll, he'll do well. And uh, I would not expe- uh, be surprised if he wins the ATP Tour final again. Um, and uh, I think he'll certainly be a factor in Australia and, and for much of... 2022 you know he's a relatively young guy um and uh, i think of all of those guys that we're thinking about in terms of team and cc pass he's the one i think who stands out the most his game is the most solid in some ways i mean we'll see when team comes back or hopefully he does come back hopefully he can regain some of the motivation and desire that perhaps he'd lost a little bit after winning but medvedev just seems really solid and now that he's got a grand slam under his belt it's going to be harder to make him uncomfortable it's going to be harder to get to him mentally in that way so i think yeah there are good things ahead for him absolutely absolutely um any last themes that, that you took from uh from the matches you know from from the u.s open or any any moments in particular that 
you know, that, that you found notable from a mental perspective, a sports psychology perspective? I think the only other one was sort of alluding to it, but in the Zverev Djokovic semifinal, I think Sasha Zverev showed again that he's maybe not quite ready for that big stage. After the fourth set, I thought he had Djokovic. Again, Djokovic was serving and volleying and more or less abandoned his uh, baseline game. And Djokovic was really trying to intentionally play very short points. And beginning of the second set, Zverev essentially broke himself. Double faulted a couple of times, really sort of egregious looking double faults. And that's just a message to Djokovic that you're nervous and for you can't do that against a guy like him. That's, you know, essentially like blood in the water for a shark. That's just going to, you know, dial him in even more. Uh, he ended up breaking right there. And Zverev uh, started looking mentally lost after that. If you see like just pictures of his face going into commercial or after some of these games. And uh, I thought he had a real opportunity to beat Djokovic. He had him on the ropes. And um, similar to... A little bit of the performance against team in the previous U.S. Open final where it was, um, you know, unfortunately not a lot of great tennis, especially in that fifth set. Uh, a little bit of a um, kind of repeat of some of those nerves. Um, up until that point, though, I thought he played great. thought he was really solid from the baseline. And, and he had to have been to, again, get Djokovic to a point where Djokovic didn't want to play long points. So... You know, what happened there? What, why, why didn't he build on that fourth set? Um, you know, was he thinking more about winning rather than what he was doing? So, you know, it would be interesting to know that. But I think um, that would be kind of the last thing that I would want to point out from, from, the, from the tournament. I just thought it was an interesting dynamic. Yeah, yeah. No. Um, one, one, I guess, last, last thing that I pointed out or, or would point out or th- that I noticed um, and somebody I definitely have my eye on is Jensen Brooksby. Oh um, yeah. Cause we saw him play when we were together in Newport. That's right. That's right. We did watch him play in Newport and he made it all the way to the finals of Newport where he lost to Kevin Anderson, um, which was a breakthrough in his own right. And then I believe also had some, some other um, also, you know, won some other matches during the U S open series that had some, um, other deep runs in the U S open series. And then, um, yeah, gave Djokovic actually a lot of trouble. Won the first set against Djokovic, um, was really battling with him in the second set as well. I think he was up a break in the second set. Um, I believe. And, um, to me, it, it shows how having sort of an unconventional game can really get under people's skin can actually make people uncomfortable and at times bring them away from their best tennis where he has a game where the ball comes to him and you don't necessarily know what he's going to do. Is he going to, is he going to hit the ball really flat? Is he going to take pace off the ball? Is he going to slice it or drop shot, come up to net? He, he plays, you know, he, he volleys quite well. Um, but just an unconventional game in terms of using a two-handed backhand slice, two-handed backhand volley, um, which are things we don't normally see at the top level. We certainly do at times with a Florian Mayer, uh, Fabrice Santoro, um, some throwbacks right there, but um, <laughs> the magician. Um, but no, I, I was impressed by by his performance um in, in the tournament as a whole, he won a, a long match against um, Michael Emer uh, from Sweden, and uh, that that performance um, against Djokovic was was very impressive as well. Definitely have my eye on him. I think he's, um, you know, he does a lot of. I think you know a lot of the commentators have talked about his serve as an area of growth, but I think um, what he does really well from the baseline is just making people uncomfortable, looking for those chances to come into net and finish points. Um, and I think it emphasizes how sometimes winning ugly, um, you know, whether it's Brad Gilbert who, you know, coined that expression and wrote the, the book um, or somebody like a 
like a Daniil Medvedev or Jensen Brooksby, who maybe is you know making looking for ways to make people uncomfortable, looking to be as difficult of an opponent as possible. How that those attributes are important. How we don't just want to be thinking about playing our our game as well as possible. We also want to think about taking our opponents out of their comfort zone and be playing a style where they're going to be uncomfortable and make it as hard as possible for them to play well. I think you can also like proactively design your game to be uncomfortable. Yep. And I think the more that players focus on that, um, then the easier it becomes to make others uncomfortable. Right. So I think Brooksby does a good job of that. I think, uh, yeah, let's hope for some growth there. I mean, uh, in terms of the serve and some of the other mechanics that he has, but he obviously has a mind for winning. And, uh, you know, that's something to really latch on to and you can build the physical things. It's sometimes it's that piece of knowing how to win. That's, um, that's really, that can be tricky to teach, especially at that top level. And now that he's had some, you know, he's had a good summer for sure. So, so, Josh, great conversation. Uh, appreciate that. So, uh, everyone, thank you for listening. For more on today's episode, please check out our show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check out our Instagram page. Thanks again, and we will talk to you soon in our next episode.